Good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig. And, of course, we've gone through another week of the uh, dreadful um, circumstances um, affecting our lifestyles, um, our lives, actually. Um, we We know that you have concerns, and we keep a close network of um, people in the culinary hospitality industry. So if you have questions, please don't hesitate to email us. It's on the menu at onthemenuradio.com, and uh, we're happy to share what information we have with you. Um, And we hope our good friend Danny Meyer will be back open again with with his team at full strength, it was a it was a shock to, to to hear that he decided that for at least for now he had to close. But we if we know Danny, he'll be back as soon as it's feasible for him to be back. Yes, well, we worry about uh, there are all these efforts out there to have emergency relief funds for all these people who are out of work, uh, and it's like such an overwhelming issue. I. They, they say if something's not done, um, just in New York City alone, there will be 500,000 people out of work by the end of this month. But, but think, new, new things are happening every day. Including so, possible medication, right? Uh, that's, that's an interesting one. That, that seems a little far-fetched, but it would be a fabulous solution if, if it turned out that there was something that there that could that could be done. Well, in the meantime, um, remember that most of these um, interviews were done um, recently, if not before the the whole issue of the coronavirus yeah. hit the front pages and the center of our lives. Um, but I think I feel really comfortable with the selection of. of People we interviewed because there's an upbeat tone to every one of them and their attitudes. Yeah, um, that's number one. And um, the other thing I was going to say is you probably need a little respite <laughs> from all the the news um, on 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 the, well on, on every thing you turn to. There's more no, coronavirus news, no. so maybe you could enjoy a little uh, diversion. Um, by listening to these people that we have today, starting off with a rather incredible woman, uh, Meredith Lee, uh, who <laughs> she's listed as, a, as an author and a butcher, but she's also a farmer and she's a writer and she's a, well, she is an author, but I mean, she's done everything. She's just a chef. So why don't we let Meredith have the floor? Exactly. Well, I'm I'm really in awe of Meredith Lee, who is a repeat uh, guest on on the menu radio. Um, I keep listing uh, listing all of her accomplishments: consultant, freelance writer, a thought leader is for sure in agriculture and food systems. Um, and you can add that they call you a um, a pioneer, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, did I make that one up? <laughs> I don't know. I like it. And, 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 and are, they, are they the ones with the arrows in the back? Are they the ones with the arrows in the back or the front? Oh, I don't know. And, and also, 
and and also, I mean, I would add to that uh, poet. I mean, yeah, you never wrote any poetry, did you? Yes, I I have written poetry. It's not necessarily published widely, um, but I very much enjoy it. Yeah. Well, your natural talent and and your writing style is beautiful. So, all right. Um, So we're now looking at we're going to talk about a updated, revised second edition of Ethical Meat. Let's let's recap for for a minute because there's something that always intrigued me about about you, Meredith. You said you started out as a vegetarian, right? That's right. Yeah. And now you're um, now on your third book about meat. Can you please explain? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so my background was of someone like many of us who was waking up to um, some of the idiosyncrasies, the grave idiosyncrasies of our food system and how food gets to us and feeling really concerned about that. And certainly um, becoming vegetarian is one of the most often cited, and especially nowadays, um, ways to address any concerns that, that a citizen might have about food. Yeah, I told um, you, I think, about our friend who became a vegan because uh, he lived across the street from Abattoir in London. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, I've heard stories going both ways in that situation, people who whose experience with an abattoir has pushed them towards veganism and people whose experience with abattoirs has pushed them towards a more... Um, conscientious consumption of meat. Um, so it can certainly go both ways. For but me, you, um, yeah. how did it happen yeah, with you? For me, it was I, I started farming and getting closer to the full story about food. I think a lot of times, I mean, let's face it, the average citizen does not have a lot of knowledge or relationship with farming, you know, the, the means by which our food comes to us. And so it can be very easy and it can seem very simple to make decisions such as eat meat or not eat meat, and especially in the Western world where a lot of people have the privilege and the luxury of cherry-picking, you know, what goes into their mouth or or into their pantry. Um, But once I started, you know, moving into a more textured relationship with land and animals and and plants and realizing... I didn't actually specify. You also, um, you teach butchering. You are a butcher. You have butchered. Uh, You are a farmer. You have farmed. You know your land. Continue along. Go ahead, Meredith. Yeah. So, just the more the more I dove into some of the um, finer details of how food is produced, the more I realized how much animals have a role in the system, and especially a system that's healthy. Um, and so that really, first of all, informed a decision to actually start eating meat again in a really conscientious way. But it also informed my decision to really devote my life to figuring out systems that do work for people and land and animals um, and try to spread a message that there is an alternative to the status quo, you know, where we are raising animals in a way that is, you know, highly detrimental to the environment and the animals themselves and often to human health. Um, You know, there is sort of a middle ground between producing meat in that way or eating no meat at all. And so that's the, you know, sort of the driving force behind the books. Yeah, well, I, I, I empathize with you when you talk about um, impossible meat or whatever it was. We've, we've tried that um, for a program. Uh, and and um, I, just, I just don't like faux things, period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, and I think 
Yeah, I don't know why, <laughs> if you're a vegan, why do you want to have a, a hunk of stuff on your plate that bleeds? Yeah, I don't know. I think that there are so many reasons why people come to veganism, and there's lots of different feelings and needs within that community. So we can't generalize by any means. Right. There, there may well be people who want to substitute as closely as possible an actual meat item, but I think that those people, I, I mean, eventually are going to, in some primal place, feel like, well, you know, this did me for a while, but this isn't actually meat, <laughs> you know, and and wanting to be awake to a better way of farming and a better way of producing food, you know, once the, the hype of Impossible Burger passes them by, they're going to be looking to people who are doing, you know, sustainable farming, regenerative agriculture, and trying to produce actual meat in responsible ways, <laughs> um, which will hopefully propel, you know, the movement towards ethical meat, as I call it, further and, and move the needle a little bit more. Now, at one point in your book, you mentioned sometimes you wonder if it's making any impact, any of this mm. soul-searching and, and restructuring, um, and, and yet you think in small ways we are, right? Yeah, I think it's, you know, I do go back and forth because in a lot of ways, systems for better food are happening all over the place, but they're happening on a very small scale and in, and in lots of ways aren't necessarily fully functional when you think about feeding, you know, a region or um, society as a whole. But I think it's a long game. You know, it's about rebuilding entire systems. I think what, I mean, at the, I don't know when this episode will air, but at the time I'm speaking to you right now, we're facing a global pandemic. Right. Yeah, <laughs> and, it, it you know, many of the systems. Progress when we yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, many of the systems upon which our society depends right now for food and fiber and community support are being questioned. You know, are they stable enough? And so I think this community of people of, of which I am, you know, a staunch, you know, member that have been asking for years, are these systems up to the task? What can we create that can better serve, you know, communities, um, you know, the knowledge and the skills that we've been building while they are still in many places rudimentary or fragmented um, they're going to become an important part of our, our collective conversation. Well, I don't want to sound like a total simpleton, but um, I am kind of simplistic of certain things. And I was shocked that I like to watch what people start buying in times mm-hmm. of, um, of any kind of threat of, of whatever. Uh, and, sure. And, yeah, an emergency of a sort. And, of course, I, I'm, I'm going to skip over the fact that the first thing they rip off the shelves is toilet paper, which I think is rather bizarre. Right, it's so strange. <laughs> I have no idea. Um, and then followed through that people advertising bidets, which I think is even more <laughs> entrepreneurial. Sure. Um, and any market leverage we can find in the crisis, right? Yeah, but, but then we have, like, there was a shortage of garlic. Okay, oh, now, the first, at first I thought, well, you know, Garlic certainly is a good um, defense against vampires, so maybe. (laughs) But then I'm I'm searching further. I realized most of the garlic sold here is grown in China. Oh, goodness, yes. I mean, well, (laughs) there you have it, right? There you have it. Well, I know garlic is considered a potent antiviral um, in herbal medicine communities, so that could be a reason for the shortage, but hopefully it will lead to a discovery by most citizens of the United States that garlic can quite easily be grown in backyard gardens and that's, farms that's domestically. That's what I mean. <laughs> you know, you can yeah. be growing it. But here, now. But here's, the, here's the real question. 
The uh, we'll, we'll let you in on a little secret. We we had a friend who was very outspoken, and she, her, but her husband worked for Whole Foods for a while, and she uh-huh. categor she categorized home food customers as yuppie scum. <laughs> oh my, yeah. And I, I, I've, well, been, I've been in line with yuppie scum for two out of the last three days. Yeah, see, I think that's bad. And I, and I don't think any of them eat garlic, so I don't know. I don't know why the demand was so high. Well, let's go back to my original thing. I mean, so this is an enlarged uh, edition. So I'd like right. for you to, to talk to us sort of simultaneously, if you could weave them back and forth together and, and so forth. Uh, what was added and mm-hmm. why has your attitude changed or has the circumstances that we're living in changed? Um, well, I would say my attitude hasn't changed and the reasons for the book haven't changed, but the, um, I mean, the intention of the book is to try and heal systems for feeding people and land, which is so highly threatened. Um, and, and so that, that underpinning of the book remains the same, but I wanted to reposition the book in such a way as to make it more accessible to people. Um, and, and so there's a few ways that that is hopefully being accomplished. First of all, I have updated much of the information to be more current towards what we're facing globally in terms of climate change, um, in terms of people's feelings about climate change, in terms of the way people are talking about farming and the science related to farming, um, and, you know, environmental health. Um, I've, al- I've also added an entire chapter to the book for people who don't think that they will find themselves farming. Um, and, you know, if you read oh, yeah, the first read edition, yeah. yeah, you know that there's a lot of information there about feeling that the most, you know, um, in control we can be of, of our food supply is by producing as much of it close to home as possible. So there's a lot of information in there for people who want to raise their own animals, both large and small. Um, but in the new edition, there's an additional chapter for folks who find themselves in very urban or potentially limited resource environments, how they can plug in in community to um, accessing better meat and supporting, you know, rural their rural counterparts or or farms. Um, and indeed, right now with everything going on in the coronavirus, this, these types of tips for non-farming folks are becoming very potent for people. Um, how to create community buying clubs, for example, um, how to stock your pantry, how to meal plan, um, those kinds of skills, you know, they might seem obvious to some of us in the food world, but for a lot of folks, um, it feels very mysterious right now. One, one of the things you, you write very passionately about is that you want people to be sure that they eat all the parts of the animal. That, it, that, if mm-hmm. the, that if they're going to take the life of anima, an animal, the, the least they can do is respect it. Uh, I'm going to eat all these parts, and then you introduce what these parts are, and there are many parts that I never heard of. Like what? Great. Oh, you, you <laughs> just look in the carving. In the carving section. Well, you mean in the butchery section. In the butchering section, yeah. Which, which animal do you want me to look oh, at? They're well, arranged, by the way, listeners, according to animals. And even, even though I think that... Um, uh, Meredith acknowledges that if you're living in, in New York on the Lower East Side, you're probably not going to be able to break down a cow in your kitchen. <laughs> oh, she That's explains, right, but she there ex- are instructions she for you, breaking yeah, she, down smaller parts. Yeah. We call them in the industry subprimals, so basically yeah. muscle groups. 
that you may be able to source from farmers or, or butchers. And um, I've added some diagrams also to the appendices of the book, which will help people who, you know, don't find themselves staring down an entire animal, what they're ordering, where on the animal right. it's coming from, um, and how to sort of um, understand what comes from, from where. You know, I've, I've never really brought myself to, to take a butchering class. And, and I went, I mean, it must have been a major decision for you to, to publish all these, um, the butchering stuff in, in full color. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I'm excited about the full color because I it think is. it's so much yeah. easier for people to see uh-huh. and, and visualize. It makes it, it makes it real, yeah. Yes. So, uh, but it's still, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's still, I think, I, I know a lot of food writers that after um, reading Michael Pollan's book, I went to a chicken farm and, and tried to, to uh, slit the throats of the chickens. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, a lot of them did. Yeah. I didn't. So, I couldn't so, yeah, it's a good friend a, of ours wrote, a, Virginia wrote a book about it, right? Right. Go ahead. Well, it's, a, it's an interesting... Um, it's an interesting thing to seek out. I mean, I think that it's not natural for a lot of people to want to experience that, but it's encouraging to me to hear that that you have acquaintances who who readily welcomes that into their learning, you know, uh, journey because it can be really, really formative. Um, even if you don't decide to make it a regular practice or or even eat meat, I think that really acknowledging what the part that death plays in oh, yeah. in Food production and and in life, um, and and just you know the the fact that it isn't all just totally Instagrammable stuff all the time <laughs> is right. probably healthier for us in the long run. I agree, I and mean, I feel guilty that I have problems with it. <laughs> um, um, but anyhow, um, I, I want to mention also that that you you have really spectacular recipes that comes with it. I was looking at oh, that one porchetta. What did it have in it? I was ready to jump through my... Oh, the, with persimmons oh, yes. and chestnuts. <laughs> yeah. Did you make that up? I did. I actually it was inspired by what the pigs that I was raising were actually eating and the environment that they were in in the fall um, on our farm. They were eating persimmons that dropped from the wild persimmon trees and, and these p- mixed pine forests that they were you know, rummaging for masks, and so I just sort of dreamed it up. And actually, my family and I made it for Christmas this past year. It was delicious. Oh, it looked, it looked, I just was drooling over it. Tell, tell me again. Um, do you, do you think that look, you're back to the farm? You know, the the character of today's farmers. I think it's a different breed, also for, for not all across the board. But I've worked with a lot of, of the local farmers on a number of stories and, and issues, and they're they're very different um, from my relatives who were farmers, for example. I don't think any of them would have thought through any of these ethical questions. Interesting. Yes, I would say there certainly is a new wave of farmers. You know, modern modern folk who are trying to reinvent the business of farming, especially if they're not raising commodity crops um, and sort of participating in, you know, the global markets associated with commodity crops. There, there is a huge cadre of farmers 
all over the country who are focused on smaller-scale regional food systems and, as such, are thinking through a lot of questions, both on the ethical front as well as sort of the um, logistical front of how do we create full supply chain infrastructures that make food available outside of that commodity, you know, based processed food realm. Um, and so it's, you know, who was it? I don't know if it was Joel Salatin or somebody saying that modern farming, most of it is occurring from the neck up, you know, referencing the oh, incredible intellectual resources that are required to, to be a farmer, especially on the small scale um, in today's world. Right. <laughs> you know, I call them my philosopher farmers. I have philosopher right. farmers and I have philosopher chefs. <laughs> totally. And I think it's interesting, you know, lots of people are drawn to farming and, and the culinary world these days because at heart they are activists and they are thinking through a lot of the implications that food has toward the way we organize communities and, and the way we nourish ourselves and the way we provide longevity to to, you know, human beings in general. And so and so it may seem like a simple decision, become a chef, become a farmer, but what's behind it is a really humongous catalog of, of concerns and ethical considerations for people in the world. Right. People who, first of all, who do you think should get this book? Well, I think any, most importantly, I wrote the book for people who have decided to eat meat and are trying to, you know, figure out how they should go about that um, because there are an incredible number of idiosyncrasies involved with being an omnivore in today's times. And, you know, mass media does not necessarily paint the entire picture for us. And so this book is an attempt for to, to communicate in a friendly and useful way to the modern omnivore how to eat meat mindfully. I do think the book is also useful for people who don't want to eat meat, who want to engage in the conversation about the place that meat has in farming and in the diet um, in a way that is sort of outside of the binary conversation in the media. Um, and I think certainly farmers of, you know, livestock who hold a lot of hope in our society right now and are looking for ways to communicate more clearly and holistically with their consumers can benefit a lot from from the book. Well, I mean, one thing that that is really uh, aside from the, the poet, the poetic aspects of this book, there's something that sets it aside. Is you're not one bit preachy, thank God. <laughs> oh well, thank you. I'm no so glad preaching. You when you said the word pilgrim earlier, I think that where that came from is as I make an assertion over and over again that I'm not a crusader. I'm not somebody who's convinced that I have all the answers or that I know the proper way forward in food and farming. But what I am committed to is a pilgrimage or, or a journey of discovery that I and fellow butchers and chefs and farmers have been on for quite some time now trying to find positive solutions that we can step into for, for the future. And so... Um, I, I certainly hope it doesn't come across as preachy. It's not. It's not at all. But, but I tell you, listeners, be, 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 beware when you take this book to your butcher for the first time and show him what cut you want. <laughs> oh, gosh. He'll probably be so annoyed with you. Ex- yeah. Ex- <laughs> expect there would be a look, look of horror. 
<laughs> but I, I want I want to close with one with one interesting. He thought. said that, by the way, because I did this when we were in Australia, because the names of the cuts were different. And, oh, yeah, and, totally. and, and the lamb was really cheap, but I, I would engage this poor butcher in the butcher shop with details of every single cut of every piece of meat I wanted. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Pictures, yeah. this, was, this was back back in the day when a side of spring lamb was <laughs> was less than $10. A, a side. Oh and Anne, Anne had a map that she would take with her, with her to the local butcher and... All of us. All of a sudden, all the butchers behind the counter were busy with other customers. <laughs> right, I bet. Yeah, well, totally if anything, in. it opens up a conversation. I hope. But I wanted. Well, I, wanted I think it will. I wanted to tell you the story of Percy. You Percy. remember Tina, oh, yeah, and, yeah, Tina yeah. and Tony? They, this is a couple who had had an, a, ver, a very elegant bed and breakfast out in the countryside. But they were mainly farming and cheese. And, and, uh, well, she she gave him two pigs. As a present, and uh-huh. with, with, within six months they had eighty pigs. <laughs> Little black. Oh my goodness! <laughs> and and he and he 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 couldn't slaughter his own pigs because he was no he was a, just a, a gentleman farmer if you like. Sure, but, sure. But when it was time when it was time that he needed a pig, he would select the one he wanted, and and get the pig in the truck. And the pig felt like he was going on vacation. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> so, so the so the so the so the pig arrived at the local butcher, who was also operated as an abattoir on the side, and was mm-hmm. loaded in there and was dead meat within a few seconds. That's right. Well, so, if it's done correctly, it shouldn't be stressful for the animal at all. Um, uh, so it sounds like they had a good setup there. Well, again, listeners, this is a very apropos for our current environment book uh, it's for our way of life it's called the ethical meat handbook revised and expanded second edition and uh, the author is a, a delight meredith lee and i'm so happy to talk to you again meredith thank you so much for having me and stay tuned for after the break we'll be going out on a chuck wagon Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. And next up, another favorite guest of ours, a repeat guest, of course, is that he's a real cowboy. Kent Rollins, and uh, he he did this wonderful, uplifting book uh, with his wonderful wife, Shannon Rollins, uh, who was not a cowgirl, but I guess she's getting to be now. Uh, the, the title of the book should give you an idea of, of why it's appropriate for the time. It's called Faith, Family, and the Feast. I'm so happy to be again able to talk to Kent Rollins, um, the first time we met was a while ago with your very first book. And um, I thought, you know, oh, will I ever have a chance to see and talk to him again? Well, I'm not seeing you, but I'm talking to you again. <laughs> this that book is, right, yeah, I said that when I saw this, boy, if ever this country needs a book like this, <laughs> it was right now. It's yeah, called yes. Faith, Family, and the Feast. And 
what is behind your thinking in terms of why we need this right now? I was brought up in a very loving family, but very traditional based uh, around an old old cow outfit, you know, where, where values, handshakes, and looking a man in the eye meant more than any contract you could ever have. And we learned that you sit down at a table and you say grace, and nobody's holding a cell phone, they're holding a fork. You know, it's, yeah. a, it's a time <laughs> together around a nation, we think, and uh, slow down, take time to know your neighbors, and when you can share it with food, Hey, it is a great thing. Yeah, you got to set the rules down. I mean, our grandchildren wouldn't dare bring a cell phone to the table. That's right. Yeah. You know, we we celebrate America's roots and its heritage, not only through uh, from a Western and a cowboy standpoint, but through the sharing of stories and recipes that uh, and in common language that we all share across different backgrounds. Now, you have a, a somewhat unusual way of making a living when you're not right. Well, you know, I've been very fortunate. Uh, my dad told me so many years ago, find something you like to do and, and do it well. You will succeed. Uh, I get to do what I want to do every day, and you know, and that's, that's being in Mother Nature's kitchen outside. Uh, we've cooked for a lot of great working ranches across the United States, met some cowboys that are uh, salt-of-the-earth people, and uh, then to get to travel across the nation and meet those people in the little small towns, but also the big cities, too. That's, they may not have grew up cowboy, but they have that draw to it. Now, how do, how do people find you? I mean, it's, it's not, you're, you're in Oklahoma, but I'm guessing that you do gigs in Texas and a few other places. But how, how do, on the average day, how many people reach out to you and find you and say, would you come cook for me? Peter, I, I couldn't even begin to count how many emails or phone calls me and Shannon get. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really blessed, and she is the love of my life, Shannon is. And But she's took what I do to a whole different level with, with the Internet and everything. And then with our YouTube channel as well, as much as it has grown in the last two years, um, we... We are really blessed to have so many people that reach out to us. We, Give us we that said, number you gave me, because it's kind of a wild number. That's 580 no, 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 I meant the number of followers on YouTube. Oh, the number of followers on YouTube, Will? Today we hit 901,000 this morning, and uh, Shannon still films all the episodes by herself. Uh, we shoot most of them on an iPhone. Uh, we finally did get somebody to help her edit, but uh, that's that's sort of where this all comes from. Uh, like I said, we we have a very strong faith based, uh, a very appreciative country of the American flag and what it stands for, and that is the crowd that follows us on YouTube. And we are so honored to have them. We've had so many emails and phone calls from people that are uh, in the service or still overseas. And um, they say, you know, what we had to do today may not have been the most pleasant thing in the world, but when we can come back and turn on a computer and watch one of your videos, it reminds us of home and why we're doing what we do. Now, let, let's get back to Shannon a bit. I mean, talk about lucking out. She's <laughs> she's wonderful. Uh, yeah, my, <laughs> you know, you always hear Mary above your head. Well, I went way above my head. I did, Ann. And, uh, it is, 
Well, I mean, well, she's gorgeous, come along. but she's also talented. I mean, she did oh. all the photography in in this book. Yes, she is a great photographer, and we've been on so many ranches that she gets to take a lot of pictures, you know, and it's in a country that a lot of people will never see, but when you get this book, you can go through there, and you can actually look look at the pictures and feel like you're part of it. And now, um, she was not a, a cowgirl when you met her. No, ma'am, she uh, come from a cow town, that's Elko, Nevada, but uh, she she didn't even cook uh, hardly any when she first come along, and uh, I've always cooked most all my life, and I, I learned, you know, to a lot of ways that you can keep somebody healthy and happy is feed them well. So uh, I cooked three meals of her from for me and her uh, forever. And then she finally got in there in the kitchen one day and went to cooking, and I said, you, you done fooled me long enough. I said, you know how to cook. And uh, But she's a great Dutch oven cook now. She's often told me that she'd rather cook outside with a Dutch oven with coals than in the house with an oven. And, well, you uh, know, this is making a big, all of a sudden, I mean, I, I grew up with Dutch ovens, and my grandmother had one. I still have her cast iron one, uh, you know, but... All of a sudden, there's been kind of a revival of interest, which interests me because with all these things, like we got one of these big things where you program everything in and it cooks everything and and so forth and so on. We couldn't understand how to work it. We put it back in yeah. the box and put it in the cupboard. <laughs> I understand that, ma'am. I I tell people they've got a little too fancy for me. I I, I sort of like building a fire, and uh, yeah. but. Shan has, she's, she has done a great job with uh, whatever she takes on. She loves to bake. Uh, a lot of the desserts uh, that are in the cookbook are her recipes that she come up with, and I was really proud of her when we were going through there and picking out stuff we might want to cook. She said, I'd like to do banana pudding. And I said, <laughs> boy, girl, you better hold on. I said, that is the holy grail of desserts down here in the South. And I oh, said, yeah. it better be one of the best things ever. And I said, because... We're going to get a lot of folks ask about it. And uh, <laughs> when she come up with it, and I mean, I it was at every funeral I was ever at, every birthday party, every wedding reception. And when she made that banana pudding and I ate it, I said, you're a southern girl at heart. <laughs> not, not only that, she wears a mean hat. <laughs> yes, she does. She now, does. Now you, you travel around in your chuck wagon. Explain, talk to us about your Studebaker. Right, it's an 1876 Studebaker chuck wagon, and for folks that might not know what that is, it is really the first Meals on Wheels ever invented. Yes. Uh, they, Studebaker made vehicles as it got on up in the, in the late 1940s and through there, but they made probably the, what we call the Cadillac of wagons. Abraham Lincoln at the White House insisted that there be a Studebaker carriage there when he become president. And uh, they passed that on through the generations, and forever there was a president that always rode in a Studebaker carriage. But it's a very, very traditional thing on a lot of ranches that are so remote that you have a chuck wagon to feed cowboys from. It's sort of like a, having just a portable kitchen. Uh, everything that you might have in, in your cupboards and drawers, I probably got it nearly that much stuff on that chuck wagon. You said you said it's an eighteen seventy something. So so that means it doesn't have an engine. No, no, it's 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 got horsepower, but that's when you hook a team to it, like a team okay, of mules so or a team of horses. So that's exactly yeah. what you do, huh? Yes, 
I mean, we've been on ranches. There's a picture right there in the first part of the book to where me and Shanner's up there in that wagon. And uh, that day we had been about 14 miles in that wagon when we were moving camps. <laughs> I see it. Now, now we, we must not forget that there's one, sto- there's one story in the book. You have to tell the story of your dog, Frank. Oh, yeah. you know, we... Uh, we come home one day, and there was this old speckled bird dog out there in the yard. About oh, wasn't plum starved to death, but he sure needed some groceries. And he was so proud to see us. And he had run off; you wouldn't see him in a day or two. And here he'd come back, and uh, we never could really find out who he belonged to. Well, as time went on, when we would leave and go somewhere, Frank would try to follow. So we'd load him up in the pickup, and he didn't want to ride. He'd get out, he'd keep following you. So we'd try to sneak off from him, and Whenever I was gone cooking, he would always have you presents when you come back. He would drag up somebody's boot from somewhere, somebody's (laughs) socks. Uh, He brought a dead turtle one day. He had a a dead raccoon one day. So I told Shannon, I said, this dog really loves us. He does. And um, he finally come in the house because we had a dog door for the beagle. And we come home one day, and Frank was laying in there on the couch, stretched up out of sleep. And I told Shannon, I said, he's ours now. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, he was a dog that really blessed our heart. Uh, he was always the most cheerful thing. I get up a lot of times, four thirty, five o'clock in the morning, and when I come around that corner in the kitchen, he'd be sitting in there in the living room floor looking at me, and he'd always talk to you. He'd just give you one of them, roar, 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 like it's about time you got up, you know. And um, we tragic. No, I was talking. Oh, he was. I was talking about we the story of the rabbit. Yeah, we lost Frank uh, about two years ago, July, I guess. But um, Frank taught me so much. He uh, he taught me you never give up in life, and there was always a rabbit in the backyard. And I, I knew Frank thought in his mind he could catch that rabbit. He never did, but he never give up. Every day he <laughs> run out that door, and he looked for that rabbit. And after he was gone, I told Shannon, I said, even though it breaks our heart, we got to remember that we have to try to catch that rabbit just like Frank did every day. It's, uh, really, it's really funny. In our photographic archive, oh, although yeah. it's not on our website, we, ha- we have a picture of my, of my cousin's dog, which was a, not an Afghan hound, but something similar to that. Just, yeah. just having caught a rabbit and, sta- <laughs> and stationed out, yeah. out, the, yeah. out the dining room window. And, yeah. and the caption on the photograph is, the hunter and the hunted. <laughs> that is right. That is right. What, what about that cat that Paula Jeannie had that used to catch the rabbits that were bigger than, than uh, she was? Yeah, but you, you, notice, you, notice, you notice that uh, we, we, we were talking about Frank, and Frank never actually caught the rabbit. Right. Where, whereas, yeah. my, whereas my cousin Richard's dog was fast enough to catch the rabbits. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I like the stories are wonderful and heartwarming throughout this book. Um, how about your haircut? That was a Lulu. Well, you know, that was, uh, to me, was a very traumatic time of in the course. first grade. And uh, I laugh about it now, but I can remember my dad was a farrier for people who don't know. It's someone who shoes horses, but yeah. he also, you know, cut the manes and stuff like that with an old set of clippers that probably weighed 10 pounds and... Uh, that's what we got haircuts with uh, right before school started. 
and he had cut my brother's hair. And uh, I mean, back then, all, all you ever got was a burr. You didn't know anything else. And uh, then he cut my other brother's hair, and when he got to me, he was already tired. He had done put in the day and probably, you know, shoot 15, 16 horses. So I knew he was tired, and he got to me, and he had hold me down, put his old big massive hands on my head. He said, you better be still, button." he said, or I'll, uh, I'll ear not you. But uh, when he... He would sort of, he, I don't think he aimed to gouge you with them clippers, but you could smell them old clippers getting hot. I told Shannon, I can remember how that old burnt oil smelled on them blades. And He would gouge you up there, and you looked pretty bad. And uh, <laughs> my mother was sure mad at him for the haircut I got, but I went to school the next day, and mm. it wasn't no time I got, got sent to the principal's office. And, uh, I mean, I couldn't read cursive writing at the time, and they gave me this note and said, you need to go home. And I'm thinking... <laughs> I like school. You go there, you get a note, and you get to go home first day, you know, and it was about a two-mile walk back to the house, and oh, my mother was out there hanging laundry on the line, and when I was able to see her, she come running out there, and she said, why are you skipping school? And mm-hmm. I said, Mama, I'm not. They sent me home. Here's a letter for you, and she opened that letter and went to read it, and I mean, boy, she got me by the collar, and she loaded me in that old Buick, and we went to town just fast as we could go walked in that principal's office because my mother knew him forever and when she went in there she slammed the door i didn't get to hear it but uh i got to stay in school which i'd rather i think it'd been better off if i'd got to stay home that day but uh they did find out when they got me there that 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 note had said because i still have it in the cellar uh, old sam crow had wrote it said we are sorry to have to send your son home but we do not want an infestation your son has ringworms. And, um, <laughs> Mama made that point very well known that it was due to the haircut, not ringworms. Mm-hmm. And when she got back home and told Daddy late that evening, he said, well, that boy ain't got ringworms. He just got a bad haircut. So, <laughs> I, See, I remember that, that very well. But this book is full of one heartwarming stories like that. But let's not forget the, uh, the recipes because um, now you you're used to cooking under rather severe circumstances. Maybe no running water, no you know no really on, on live fire. And, but these recipes you fix them so that people who are cooking at home can actually use them, right? Yes, they're all converted to in the house, and uh, because everything that's in that book, we uh, I cooked outside first. You know, because that's where I, I'm the most comfortable cooking. And uh, when I knew it was something that I really wanted to do for the cookbook, uh, and we might have also did it on a YouTube video, then then I would bring it back in the house and cook it again. So where I knew that, you know, you don't you don't have to have a Dutch oven to cook these things. Sure, I think cast iron makes everything taste better. But this book is for not only the person who has cooked in a lot of cast iron and a Dutch oven, but also for someone who wants to cook inside all the time. And um, there are so many recipes in there that will just, uh, they'll, they'll keep people coming back to your house for more. I want this ham, egg, and bacon waffle bacon. I mean, I've mm-hmm. never seen anything like it. <laughs> oh, it is good. I come up with that one time when I was uh, on an elk hunting trip, and uh, you get to looking at leftovers and stuff you might have, and you think what can go together with something else, and... Uh, then I got to thinking about all them old country diners that I'd been in that used to serve different kinds of breakfast, and I'm thinking, yep, I'm going to cover the whole deal here. It's going to have waffles, it's going to have eggs, it's going to have gravy, and it's going to have bacon. 
<laughs> we're talking through all of those. <laughs> oh, well, the recipes are great. There's plenty of, of wonderful stories. Um, there's poetry. You, you, you touched on all of it, Kent Rollins, and uh, you did it again. It's called Faith, Family, and the Feast, Recipes to Feed Your Crew from the Grill, Garden, and Iron Skillet. And it's, listeners, believe me, it's uplifting, which is something we all need right at this moment. Thank you for the book and for talking to us, Kent. Oh, ma'am, it is my pleasure to always get to visit with you and Peter. Y'all are salt of the earth people and welcome in our camp anytime. Great. I wish we could. Okay, and and keep us posted. You're becoming such a media star here. Well, uh, we'll do, ma'am. I ain't never been... uh, Somebody asked me, said, you're getting pretty famous, ain't you? And I said, no, I've been tired, but I've never been famous. (laughs) I'm so happy to be again able to talk to... Kent Rollins, um, the first time we met was a while ago with your very first book. And um, I thought, you know, oh, will I ever have a chance to see and talk to him again? Well, I'm not seeing you, but I'm talking to you again. <laughs> this that book is, is right, yeah, I said that when I saw this, boy, if ever this country needs a book like this, <laughs> it was right now. It's yeah, called yes. Faith, Family, and the Feast. And what is behind your thinking in terms of why we need this right now? I was brought up in a very loving family, but very traditional based uh, around an old old cow outfit, you know, where, where values, handshakes, and looking a man in the eye meant more than any contract you could ever have. And we learned that you sit down at a table and you say grace, and nobody's holding a cell phone, they're holding a fork. You know, it's, yeah. a, it's a time together. <laughs> around a nation, we think, and uh, slow down, take time to know your neighbors, and when you can share it with food, hey, it is a great thing. Yeah, you got to set the rules down. I mean, our grandchildren wouldn't dare bring a cell phone to the table. That's right. Yeah. You know, we, we celebrate America's roots and its heritage, not only through uh, from a Western and a cowboy standpoint, but through the sharing of stories and recipes that uh, and in common language that we all share across different backgrounds. Now, you have a, a somewhat unusual way of making a living when you're not right. Well, you know, I've been very fortunate. Uh, my dad told me so many years ago, find something you like to do and, and do it well, you will succeed. Uh, I get to do what I want to do every day, and you know, and that's, that's being in Mother Nature's kitchen outside. Uh, we've cooked for a lot of great working ranches across the United States, met some cowboys that are uh, salt of the earth people and uh, then to get to travel across the nation and meet those people in the little small towns but also the big cities too that's they may not have grew up cowboy but they have that draw to it now how do how do people find you i mean it's, it's not you're you're in oklahoma but uh, i'm guessing that you do gigs in texas and a few other places but how how do on the average day how many people reach out to you and find you and say would you come cook for me Oh, Peter, I, I couldn't even begin to count how many emails or phone calls me and Shannon get. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really blessed, and she is the love of my life, Shannon is. And But she's took what I do to a whole different level with, with the Internet and everything. And then with our YouTube channel as well, as much as it has grown in the last two years, um, we... 
we are really blessed to have so many people that reach out to us. We, Give us we that number that, you gave me, because this is kind of a wild number. That's 580-471-3700. No, 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 I meant the number of followers on YouTube. Oh, the number of followers on YouTube, Will? Today we hit 901,000 this morning, and uh, Shannon still films all the episodes by herself. Uh, we shoot most of them on an iPhone. Uh, we finally did get somebody to help her edit, but uh, that's that's sort of where this all come from. Uh, like I said, we we have a very strong faith based, uh, a very appreciative country of the American flag and what it stands for, and that is the crowd that follows us on YouTube. And we are so honored to have them. We've had so many emails and phone calls from people that are uh, in the service or still overseas. And um, they say, you know, what we had to do today may not have been the most pleasant thing in the world, but when we can come back and turn on a computer and watch one of your videos, it reminds us of home and why we're doing what we do. Now, let, let's get back to Shannon a bit. I mean, talk about lucking out. She's <laughs> she's wonderful. Uh, yeah, my, <laughs> you know, you always hear Mary above your head. Well, I went way above my head. I did, and and. Uh, it is. Uh, well, I mean, she's, she's gorgeous, come along. but she's also talented. I mean, she did oh. all the photography in in this book. Yes, she is a great photographer, and we've been on so many ranches that she gets to take a lot of pictures, you know. And it's in country that a lot of people will never see, but when you get this book, you can go through there and you can actually look look at the pictures and feel like you're part of it. And now, um, she was not a, a cowgirl when you met her. No, ma'am, she uh, come from a cow town, that's Elko, Nevada, but uh, she she didn't even cook uh, hardly any when she first come along, and uh, I've always cooked most all my life, and I, I learned, you know, to a lot of ways that you can keep somebody healthy and happy is feed them well. So uh, I cooked three meals of her from, for me and her uh, forever. And then she finally got in there in the kitchen one day and went to cooking, and I said, you, you done fooled me long enough. I said, you know how to cook. And uh, But she's a great Dutch oven cook now. She's often told me that she had rather cook outside with a Dutch oven with coals than in the house with an oven. And, uh, well, you know, this is making a big, all of a sudden, I mean, I, I grew up with Dutch ovens, and my grandmother had one. I still have her cast iron one, uh, you know, but... All of a sudden, there's been kind of a revival of interest, which interests me because with all these things, like we got one of these big things where you program everything in and it cooks everything and, and so forth and so on. We couldn't understand how to work it. We put it back in yeah. the box and put it in the cupboard. <laughs> I understand that, ma'am. I, I tell people they've got a little too fancy for me. I I, I sort of like building a fire. And, uh, yeah. But Shan has, she's... She has done a great job with uh, whatever she takes on. She loves to bake. Uh, a lot of the desserts uh, that are in the cookbook are her recipes that she come up with, and I was really proud of her when we were going through there and picking out stuff we might want to cook. She said, I'd like to do banana pudding. And I said, boy, girl, you better hold on. I said, that is the holy grail of desserts down here in the South. And I oh, said, yeah. it better be one of the best things ever. And I said, because... We're going to get a lot of folks ask about it. And uh, <laughs> when she come up with it, and I mean, I, 
It was at every funeral I was ever at, every birthday party, every wedding reception. And when she made that banana pudding and I ate it, I said, you're a southern girl at heart. <laughs> no, no, not only that, she wears a mean hat. Yes, she does. She now, does. So you, you travel around in your chuck wagon. Explain, talk to us about your Studebaker. Right, it's an 1876 Studebaker chuck wagon, and for folks that might not know what that is, it is really the first Meals on Wheels ever invented. Yes. Uh, they, Studebaker made vehicles as it got on up in the, in the late 1940s and through there, but they made probably the, what we call the Cadillac of wagons. Abraham Lincoln at the White House insisted that there be a Studebaker carriage there when he become president. And uh, they passed that on through the generations, and forever there was a president that always rode in a Studebaker carriage. But it's a very, very traditional thing on a lot of ranches that are so remote that you have a chuck wagon to feed cowboys from. It's sort of like a, having just a portable kitchen. Uh, everything that you might have in, in your cupboards and drawers, I probably got it nearly that much stuff on that chuck wagon. You said you said it's an eighteen seventy something. So so that means it doesn't have an engine. No, no, it's 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 got horsepower, but that's when you hook a team to it, like a team okay, of mules so, or a team of horses. So that's exactly yeah. what you do, huh? Yes, I mean we've been on ranches. There's a picture right there in the first part of the book to where me and Shanner's up there in that wagon, and uh, that day we had been about fourteen miles in that wagon when we were moving camps. <laughs> I see it. Now, now yeah. we we must not forget that there's one sto- there's one story in the book. You have to tell the story of your dog Frank. Oh, yeah. You know we uh, we come home one day and there was this old speckled bird dog out there in the yard about oh, wasn't plump starved to death, but he sure needed some groceries and he was so proud to see us and he'd run off. You wouldn't see him in a day or two, and here he'd come back and. Uh, we never could really find out who he belonged to. Well, as time went on, when we would leave and go somewhere, Frank would try to follow her. So we'd load him up in the pickup, and he didn't want to ride. He'd get out. He'd keep following you. So we'd try to sneak off from him. And whenever I was gone cooking, he would always have you presents when you come back. He would drag up yes, somebody's boot from somewhere, somebody's <laughs> socks. Uh, he brought a dead turtle one day. He had a, a dead raccoon one day. So... I told Shannon, I said, this dog really loves us. He does. And um, he finally come in the house because we had a dog door for the beagle. And we come home one day, and Frank was laying in there on the couch, stretched up out of sleep. And I told Shannon, I said, he's ours now. <laughs> and uh, he was a dog that really blessed our heart. Uh, he was always the most cheerful thing. I get up a lot of times, 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning, and, when I come around that corner in the kitchen, he'd be sitting in there in the living room floor looking at me, and he'd always talk to you. He'd just give you one of them, roar, 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 like it's about time you got up, you know. And um, we tragic. No, I was talking. Oh, he was. I was talking about we the story of the rabbit. Frank. Yeah, we lost Frank um, about two years ago, July, I guess. But um, Frank taught me so much. He uh, he taught me you never give up in life, and. There was always a rabbit in the backyard, and I knew Frank thought in his mind he could catch that rabbit. He never did, but he never give up. Every day he run out that door, and he looked for that rabbit. And after he was gone, I told Shannon, I said, 
even though it breaks our heart, we got to remember that we have to try to catch that rabbit just like Frank did every day. It's, uh, really, it's really funny. In our photographic archive, oh, although yeah. it's not on our website, we, ha- we have a picture of my, of my cousin's dog, which was a, not an Afghan hound, but something similar to that. Just, yeah. just having caught a rabbit and, sta- <laughs> and stationed out, yeah. out, the, yeah. out the dining room window. Yeah. And, and the caption on the photograph is, the hunter and the hunted. <laughs> that is right. That is right. And what about that cat that Paul Jeannie had that used to catch the rabbits that were bigger than, than uh, she was? Yeah, but you, you notice, you notice that, you notice that uh, we, we, we were talking about Frank, and Frank never actually caught the rabbit. Right. Where, whereas, yeah. my, whereas my cousin Rich's dog was fast enough to catch the rabbits. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I like the stories are wonderful and heartwarming throughout this book. Um, how about your haircut? That was a Lulu. Well, you know, that was, uh, to me, was a very traumatic time of in the course. first grade. And uh, I laugh about it now, but I can remember my dad was a farrier, for people who don't know it, someone who shoes horses, but yeah. he also, you know, cut the manes and stuff like that with an old set of clippers that probably weighed 10 pounds and... Uh, that's what we got haircuts with uh, right before school started. <laughs> and he had cut my brother's hair. And, uh, I mean, back then, all, all you ever got was a burr. You didn't know anything else. And uh, then he cut my other brother's hair. And when he got to me, he was already tired. He had done put in the day and probably, you know, shoot 15, 16 horses. So I knew he was tired. And he got to me, and he had hold me down, put his old big, massive hands on my head. He said, you better be still, button. He said, or I'll, uh, I'll ear not you. <laughs> but uh, he he would sort of, he, I don't think he aimed to gouge you with them clippers, but you could smell them old clippers getting hot. I told Shannon, I can remember how that old burnt oil smelled on them blades. and He would gouge you up there and you looked pretty bad. And uh, <laughs> my mother was sure mad at him for the haircut I got, but I went to school the next day and mm. there wasn't no time I got, got sent to the principal's office. And um, I mean, I couldn't read cursive writing at the time and they give me this note and said you need to go home and i'm thinking i like school you go there you get a note and you get to go home first day you know and it was about a two mile walk back to the house and my mother was out there hanging laundry on the line and when i was able to see her she come running out there and she said why are you skipping school and Mm -hmm. i said mama i'm not they sent me home here's a letter for you and she opened that letter and went to read it i mean boy she got me by the collar and she loaded me in that old buick and we went to town just fast as we could go walked in that principal's office because my mother knew him forever and when she went in there she slammed the door i didn't get to hear it but uh i got to stay in school which i'd rather i think it'd been better off if i'd got to stay home that day but uh they did find out when they got me there that that, that note had said, because I still have it in the cellar, uh, old Sam Crow had wrote it, said, we are sorry to have to send your son home, but we do not want an infestation. Your son has ringworms. <laughs> and, um, Mama made that point very well known that it was due to the haircut, not ringworms. Mm-hmm. And when she got back home and told Daddy late that evening, he said, well, that boy ain't got ringworms. He just got a bad haircut. So, <laughs> I, See, I remember but, that very well. But this book is full of warm, heartwarming stories like that. 
But let's not forget the, uh, the recipes because um, now you, you're used to cooking under rather severe circumstances. Maybe no running water, no, you know, no really on live fire. And, but these recipes, you fix them so that people who are cooking at home can actually use them, right? Yes, they're all converted to in the house, and uh, because everything that's in that book, we uh, I cooked outside first. You know, because that's where I, I'm the most comfortable cooking. And uh, when I knew it was something that I really wanted to do for the cookbook, uh, and we might have also did it on a YouTube video, then then I would bring it back in the house and cook it again to where I knew that, you know, you don't, you don't have to have a Dutch oven to cook these things. Sure, I think cast iron makes everything taste better. But this book is for not only the person who has cooked in a lot of cast iron and a Dutch oven, but also for someone who wants to cook inside all the time. Mm-hmm. And um, there are so many recipes in there that will just, uh, they'll, they'll keep people coming back to your house for more. I want this ham, egg, and bacon waffle bake. I mean, I've never mm-hmm. seen anything like it. <laughs> oh, it is good. I come up with that one time when I was uh, on an elk hunting trip, and uh, you get to looking at leftovers and stuff you might have, and you think what can go together with something else. And uh, then I got to thinking about all them old country diners that I'd been in that used to serve different kinds of breakfast, and I'm thinking, yep, I'm going to cover the whole deal here. It's going to have waffles, it's going to have eggs, it's going to have gravy, and it's going to have bacon. We does it all of those. <laughs> oh, well, the recipes are great. There's plenty of, of wonderful stories. Um, there's poetry. You, you you touched on all of it, Kent Rollins, and uh, you did it again. It's called Faith, Family, and the Feast, Recipes to Feed Your Crew from the Grill, Garden, and Iron Skillet. And it's, listeners, believe me, it's uplifting, which is something we all need right at this moment. Thank you for the book and for talking to us, Kent. Oh, ma'am, it is my pleasure to always get to visit with you and Peter. Y'all are salt of the earth people and welcome in our camp anytime. Great. I wish we could. Okay, and, and keep us posted. You're becoming I- such a media star here. Well, uh, we'll do, ma'am. I ain't never been, uh, somebody asked me, said, you're getting pretty famous, ain't you? And I said, no, I've been tired, but I've never been famous. <laughs> and finally, um, something else very apropos to our current situation. There's a new variation on the community-supported agriculture programs that, that most people adhere to. Um, and we're going to hear it. From it's, it's called the Harvey Farm Program, and we're going to be talking to uh, the founder. Si- Simon, <laughs> Simon Huntley, wake up, dear. Well, I always say I like to learn things, and, and I, I got a press release um, and, uh, to uh, our, uh, about this Harvey Farm Program, and I have to admit I knew nothing about it. Um, but we're going to be talking to Simon Huntley, who actually initiated it and has been directing its expansion um, throughout the United States. It is a an American-based program, is it not? Yeah, we, we do do some amount of business in Canada and Australia as well, but we're um, mostly in the United States. So, oh, you're in Australia too? What part? Yeah, we... <laughs> We have one farm in Tasmania, of all places. So, oh, we have. Uh, oh, we might know our cousin who lives there. 
Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, could Do be worth a visit someday, right? Pardon? <laughs> oh, sure. Could be worth a visit someday. Uh, absolutely. We used to live there. Not Tasmania, but in Australia. Mm-hmm. Hello? Hello? Are you there? I am. So did did you happen to know our uh, our cousin who makes organic avocados on the Shaw I, Estate? I, I, uh, no, uh, no, I only know this one farm in, Austra- in, in Tasmania. That's the, the only person I know in Tasmania. So. Oh, okay. You, you don't know where it is, do you? Um, I think it's in the north, but uh, okay. I know it's sort of up in the mountains. I'm, I'm not too familiar well, with There's tons Tasmania. of mountains there, yeah. All right, well, let's skip that one. Let's go back to when did you come up? What did you do before you were directing this program? Yeah, well, this is really most of what I've done for the last uh, 15 years in different permutations. So I grew up on a farm in southwestern Pennsylvania, and um, and then I was more interested in technology. And but then it, so I went to Penn State for information science and technology. But then I sort of sort of got reinterested in agriculture and and farming. I was um, and then so I ended up working on a farm for a couple years after college. And so what, what my business has been over the last 15 years is joining my passion for agriculture with technology and, and helping farms really hopefully have a better living, be able to support their families, be able to produce really great food. And, um, and so that's what I've done the last 15 years. And, um, this Harvey program is, uh, we're going to the fourth season of Harvey. And so it's, a uh, are really a reimagining of what we do and thinking about, and we could talk, uh, this probably be an interesting topic, is how food buying habits have really changed over the last five or ten years. And and then like a lot, a lot of farms, because of these changes, are struggling to sell their product, and so Harvey helps them reach their consumer. Go, go ahead, please. You, 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 got, you got our attention. Please explain further. Yeah, so uh, I, I guess I started to hear I, I started to hear from my farms five or six years ago that they were having they're having problems finding new customers. A lot of our farms are they maybe sell at farmers markets or they sell through CSA or community supported agriculture, and that's where uh, I'm not sure if you you're familiar, but some of your audience may be, some of your audience may not be, but it's where people buy basically a subscription in a farm and get a weekly box of produce throughout the growing season. And how is this different from a CSA? Well, I would say it's inspired by what what CSA has done. Uh, The whole CSA thing is is really interesting, I think, in some ways. Um, It started in 1986. uh, There's a couple stories of where it came from, but there were a couple farms in, um, I believe, Massachusetts that started doing CSA, and it was 1986 was the first year. And then that, that really grew, and there's a farm crisis then, too. A lot of farms were shutting down. And so CSA started to become this way where a farm could really make a living, could serve their local customers. And it really became pretty popular through maybe, I don't know, through 2015. There were um, as many as probably five, five or 6,000 farms across the U.S. doing this at one time. And, and we had a piece of software that, that helped those farms uh, manage that kind of business that we called member assembler. And so I started to hear from my farms that they were having trouble finding new customers, retaining customers. A lot of them started to shut down. And so I really spent 
a couple of years on, or a, about a year on customer research. I just went out and I interviewed people that were part of CSA programs before and left and people who had never heard of them before and did surveys and focus groups and all this just to try to understand what's going on here because I, I recognized that if my farms were losing their customers, eventually I was not going to have a business anymore because my farms didn't have a business anymore. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I started writing about it. I have a big email list of farms that I talk to. We have like a big Facebook group of farms. And um, so I recognized a few key things that were a problem with, with the way CSA was working. Um, and we can talk about some of those specific things. But oh, please, to, yeah, your, please uh, do. to your original question, I think one of the big things that's changed, as I said, that food buying habits have really changed since I got involved with this and maybe... Um, 2005, 2006, uh, I helped the farm in Colorado start a CSA program, and we got like 150 members. It was so easy. We got on TV at like the local TV station, and in those intervening years, Whole Foods came along, Blue Apron, um, uh, and now we have home delivery. All these different uh, grocery stores are doing home delivery. So the way that people are buying food is really changing, and I think that's one of the big things that's happened. Yeah, now there's a, there's something going on because uh, one of the original um, participants in the farm to, to table movement, I mean mainly having to do with restaurants, was um, Penn's Southwest Corner, whatever it's called, Penn's Corner, and they just yeah. were bought out by Paragon. So um, they were early on, but farmers are traditionally very difficult to organize. Right. <laughs> And that seems yeah. to me to be the big problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Farmers are independent folk. I mean, I think one of the things that is difficult for them is that um, farming is really difficult, obviously. So, um, you know, you got weather to deal with, and you got labor, and you've got, you know, high equipment costs and low margins. And so it's a really difficult way to make a living. And I think a lot of the farms that I'm ta- I've been talking to over the last couple of years, especially about our new Harvey program, and they see that what we're doing, we're, we're um, you know, one of the things that we do that I recognize out of my research is if, if anyone's been, a, have you ever been in a CSA program? Mm, well, not really. Our, our, yeah. our, so, our son and daughter-in-law are in one. Yeah, there our son and daughter-in-law are in one in Philadelphia, and um, I used to sort of dabble in it that um yeah um, because it, yeah. they were because I, I live amongst a bunch of restaurants so that i would get some stuff but anyhow go ahead yeah so one of the main things that was like based on my research and based on common sense is that um, the original csa box was all about like it basically was like whatever the farm was growing they put it in a box and then they'd send it out right yeah and so that sort of worked for a while, but if you if you don't like some, if you don't like beets or you don't like you know your if you think that cilantro tastes like soap like a certain percentage of the population does or you know all these different things yeah that that's a big impediment to so that's one thing that our platform that the Harvey platform solves is how do you provide customized boxes based on farm harvest okay. to customers um, and. Yeah, so that, that, that's one thing. So, you know, that's one of the big things about Harvey. So as we talk to farms, 
they sort of understand what we're doing. They understand that if they serve their consumer better, they'll have more sales. But they're so overwhelmed with actually being a farmer that it's hard for them to think about innovation and doing something new. And how do you compete against Amazon and Whole Foods? You oh, know, yeah. You're, you're a single farmer. And so that's sort of what the Harvey platform is trying to solve. I think of what where we are is we're halfway between you know, farmers markets and CSA on one side and the other side is like Amazon Prime and e-commerce and all that. And so Harvey is somewhere in the middle there trying to take the best of both worlds, right? Really that authentic, that authenticity and, and taste and freshness that comes from farms and marry it with this really customer friendly, um, customizable piece of sort of e-commerce and Amazon Prime and, and home delivery is a big thing that we're doing now. So who delivers um, it? You deliver it. We work with courier companies to do the actual last mile of the delivery, yeah. So, you know, you could think of it as, like, the same way that, like, Grubhub and uh, uh, but Uber Eats and all that, you know, we, we can we can sit on top of some of those networks to do the uh, the last mile delivery to get it right to people. And that's what people want. Um, it's easier than... The, the classic thing with CSA programs was there would be like a coffee shop or someone's porch in your neighborhood and you'd have to go pick yeah, it up right. or, or, uh, or obviously farmers markets are only open a couple hours a week. So, um, you know, that, that's, I think that's been a really fascinating thing here, here, uh, here in Pittsburgh. If you go to the, if you go to the Whole Foods here, and now it's about half the people in there are, Shopping for home delivery customers because they have just people walking down the aisles. It's not funny. And, yeah, they, they and Giant it. Eagle wants the robots to do it. The robots are, are going around <laughs> to the shelves. I, That's I, funny. I have, I have to tell you, here's a little bit, piece of feedback for you because I go, I go to Whole Foods in Shadyside almost, almost every day, and I, and I get so fed up because there are all these most, mostly big fat people. <laughs> Wondering, going around the the, the, the different uh, vegetables, and they're always in the way. And you wonder, well, are they are they really getting quality when when they get it? I mean, is, is it is it as good as you would like as your farmers would like it to be? Mm-hmm. I don't understand the question. Because we're, fe- we're not using that, but yeah. I hear you. They're personal uh, shoppers, I, but they don't have a clue. They don't have a clue. What, well, what the giant cost. eagle's going to use robots to do it. So. Well, that'll be even worse. I think they already do it, actually. <laughs> Funny. Um, yeah, so food buying habits are changing, and I think that farms really recognize that. And so what we're piloting this year here in Pittsburgh and with the plan to roll it out to other markets in, in future years is a... We're bringing together multiple farms, and then we're doing home delivery. So we're bringing together vegetable producers, um, herbs, eggs, milk, cheese, um, honey, bread, those kind of things, putting it into a single box, and then doing the home delivery out. So, you know, my, uh, you know, I really, I think that, you know, I think that most people recognize that if you're buying directly from your local farm, that it's, it's going to be something that's really fresh. It's going to be really healthy. It's going to be really tasty. It's going to be good for the local economy. It's good for the environment, all these things. But I think what what I've recognized over the last couple of years is that it still has to – a lot of consumers understand that piece, like what I just said, but it has to fit 
with your life, right? I mean, you're, you're a busy person. You've got a hundred other things going on. And so we need to make it just as convenient as buying on from Whole Foods Home Delivery as buying from your local farm. And that's really the goal of what Harvey does. Now, um, there were, at one point, there were more farmers markets, um, per capita, um, in, in Pittsburgh, which is where we live, um, than any place. I mean, it was just like that. And then suddenly there was a shortage of, um, vendors. I mean, there's just a limit to how much you can stretch the existing farms. And so they started closing down some of the markets. I mean, what are you doing to overcome that obstacle? Supply, it's called. Right. Well, farmers' markets are sort of a different beast. Um, It's very difficult for a farmer to staff a farmers' market, very time-consuming. If there aren't enough sales at at that market, then... You know, they're essentially losing money by being there. And so with a program like Harvey Farms Pittsburgh, we're buying from, we're essentially buying wholesale from the farms. And so they, they love it as we talk to them, you know, over the last couple months about this program. They say, Hey, we really want you to do this because we can't do it. We know we can't do it on our own. We're too busy doing it on our own. But if they can just send us like, you know, 10 cases of lettuce or, you know, whatever it is that week, then that makes sense for them. And, uh, yeah, but whereas a farmer's market, it's really hard for a farm to make that work at any kind of scale. Um, so farmer's markets are really difficult. And I've, I've been, you know, I worked farmer's markets as a farmer, you know, so I I know what it is. I know what it's like. It's tough. Well, now, let, let, let me dig just a little further. I'm not sure I entirely understand Quite, quite how it works. But the, the first part of the transactions, if you like, is the farmer grows some stuff. And, and then you, you come along and you buy it from him or her. So, so that's the first part of the financial side of the transaction. And then you sell it to the end user. But, but, but does that, does that have to be, I mean, it, is is your entity you calling it something like Harvey? Is is that an organization that's sort of put together that has the financial viability to be able to do that kind of thing? Yeah. So basically, people sign up for. Uh, we're sort of, um, if people are familiar with the CSA model, we're sort of inspired by that, uh, where we have people like we have people signing up right now, and we've had a really a pretty amazing response in the first 10 days since we've announced Harvey Farms Pittsburgh. We're over, we're already over half sold out for the season, or at least our initial, our initial goal of where we wanted to be. So people sign up for essentially a subscription. So they say we're, this year we'll start with 26 weeks starting in late May. And people can say, Hey, I want to buy, you know, we have a couple different price points. We have like a $29 box. And I think it's 49. And 79. So people pick one, like one size, and they say, hey, I want that weekly, I want it every other week, or I want it every four weeks. And then they can schedule that around their schedule if they're going out of town or whatever, so they can tell us when they want it. And um, people can set preferences as far as what they like and what they don't like. So they can tell Harvey, 
they really like cilantro, they really like lettuce, but they don't like beets and kohlrabi as much, or, you know, whatever people's personal preferences are. And then when it comes each week of delivery, a couple days before the delivery, we work with the farms to figure out what is har- what is being harvested that week, and we put that into the system. And then Harvey pre-customizes the box based on each person's pre-existing preferences. So, you know, if we know you don't like cilantro or beets or whatever it is, we won't give that to you. And then, um, and then you have a certain amount of time to make some changes to your box if you want to. And then at that point, when that closes, then we send the harvest list over to the farm. They harvest it, get it to us. We put it in a box and then we, we deliver it out to people. Now, who? So that's, that's the way it works. So, so who owns Harvey? Me. You do. Okay. <laughs> well, no, I'm just, I started. I'm just I own it. <laughs> okay. So, how, so, how many people work for you? We have a team of about ten people. Naturally. And I'm, I'm just picturing. I'm just picturing you, Simon, going to the bank and saying, Mr. Mr. Bank, would you please loan me a million dollars because I have some vegetables I want to sell? <laughs> yeah, well, luckily not necessary. Oh, okay. Um, I mean, we, we built the technology platform over the last uh, four years. We have, we have about 150 farms using the platform across the U.S. and Canada, and so that's about 50,000 end consumers will use the platform this year, um, and that's about... It's over 500,000 boxes that we'll, we'll deliver, um, in, in 2020. So, you know, going close to, probably closer to a million boxes that we'll deliver through the platform this year. Um, and then, like Harvey Farms Pittsburgh is a little bit of a different, you know, we have farms using the platform and that's, that's what that is. Harvey Farms Pittsburgh is, is a new part of us actually working with the farms, coordinating the delivery and everything. So it's a little bit of a pilot project of, us taking it even one step farther. That oh, makes okay. okay. Um, now, do you have all this information on your website, and maybe you should tell us what it, the website is? Yeah, if you want to visit harvey.farm. It's not harvey.com. It's harvey.farm, H-A-R-V-I-E, dot farm. And if anyone's wondering, Harvey is short for harvest. So that that's why it's called Harvey. Uh, Harvey is short for harvest. I thought it was a big white imaginary rabbit. <laughs> All right, yeah. that's a why. That was in a movie, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. With Jimmy, with Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so you're, da- you're dating yourself with that one. It's, 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 <laughs> <laughs> younger folks don't know anything about that. Hey, uh, I can so. I can I can remember the first time I went to a movie. It was called Fantasia. Oh yeah. <laughs> That was a long time ago. It was, it was a long time ago. Now, um, the like, how many you started out in Western cities? Is that because you lived there? Um, with, with Harvey, you mean? Yeah. No, we didn't start in the West. Uh, I, I worked on it. You might be referring to. I worked on a farm in Colorado for a couple of years, uh-huh. um, but that's just sort of. Uh, a random circumstance, and we work with farms, as I said, across the U.S. and Canada. So if people look at Harvey.farm, there's a map on there, and you can see where all the farms are and try to see if there's a farm in 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 your area that uh, that delivers to you. So and what if you're yeah, a we farm work- that wants to participate in a program and there isn't one in the area? What do they do? 
they would just contact us and, and we work with them to see if Harvey is a fit for what they want to do on their farm. I see. Okay. Well, I mean, I think you have a lot of work in front of you here. <laughs> it's a big project. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's exciting. I think that I mean, my, my question that I've been asking over all these years, especially based on my background, I mean, I grew up on a farm, but my parents weren't full-time farmers. And so one of the things that, that I've always been interested in is how do we, how do we, because I think agriculture is really important for, you know, our future from, from an ecological perspective. It's, it's, then that's one thing that, that it has really attracted me to agriculture is it feels like something that, that we can concretely do to make the world a better place. It's good, you know, that, for example, like smart farming practices are really good for, you know, carbon sequestration, for example, if you want to think about it from that perspective, or uh, water pollution, or you know, there's a lot of reasons why taking good care of a piece of land is really good for our world, right? And so I, th- I think one thing that's really interesting about agriculture is like, and from a consumer perspective, it is one th- it is one concrete thing that you can do every day to make the world a better place is be conscious about the way you eat, uh, be conscious about the type of farms that you're buying from, and you really are making the world a little bit better by by supporting local agriculture, supporting local farms. And so that's one thing that's been really interesting to me. It's like, it's something really concrete. It's not like, right. it's not like reading the news and getting all mad about the, like, the political situation. You know, it's like, here's one thing that you can do is, is you know, you and remember, it tastes better too. <laughs> it does taste better. You, you remember that restaurant that we talked to? I think he was in Austin, Texas, and he had like, he had four restaurants and People weren't growing the kinds of vegetables that he wanted, so he said, here's a deal, guys, to, to the farmers of the community oh, he was yeah, a part right. of. He said, if, if, if you grow what I tell you to grow, I'll buy all of it. So he did. So, so, so and that's what we need to do, and I think like that's part of what Harvey is about, right, is that we need to show, we need to show farmers that there's a market, and we need to work with them, and, you know, um, and they're going to grow if, if we can show them there's a market. But it also has to be something that's convenient for the consumer, too. And so that's what we're trying to bring together here. Sure. Well, well I wish you a lot of luck. I'm, I'm behind the mission 1,000%. So, Thank you. Yes. So at some point in your life, you ought to talk to, what's her name, 412 Food Rescue? Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, Le- yeah Le- I know Le- her. Mm-hmm. Le- 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 Maybe you could do something together. Mm-hmm. Well, she yeah, combines the food thing with the high tech, or the technology. Yeah, well, it's the same, same as Simon. So, anyhow, um, hey, hey Simon, do, watch you. Before I sign off on this, um, do you do, or are you planning to do anything with um, meat and poultry? Yeah, so there's a meat there's a meat option with okay. Harvey with Harvey Farms Pittsburgh as well. So, so we'll do a butcher box once a month from oh, Jubilee Hill yeah. You know, Branch. laptop butcher shop, right? Um, it's, it's not affiliated with that, but... No, uh, but you do know about it, yeah. Oh, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it yeah, turns out everybody that. wants steak, unfortunately. <laughs> right. I was the only one that, that wanted the, uh, what was it I wanted? Liver, I, probably liver. Probably liver or something. Oh, chitlins or something like or something that. like that. Uh-huh. Yeah, but most everybody uh, wanted West just steak. is a great place to grow, uh, to grow animals. Uh, that's, I grew up on a sheep. 
a sheep farm, so oh, did I you? know about it. <laughs> yeah, well, you you know about the Jamison's book then. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, well, they're having a book signing coming up, yeah. All right, well, we're all in this together, um, and so it's very nice to actually talk to you, Simon Huntley, and um, and we'll stay in touch, I hope, huh? That sounds good. Thanks for your time. Okay, Simon, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that's a wrap again. This was a long program. A lot going on. Yeah, well, there's a lot. I'm sure there'll be a lot going on between now and this time next week. So we'll bring you the news as we as we have been doing recently. We'll hope it's better. And in the meantime, we'll say bye bye.